0: You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Today's message is entitled, We See Him. It's a broad theme in the book of Hebrews as a fixing our eyes or lifting our eyes or keeping our eyes or looking our eyes, looking at Jesus. Really, that's a major theme and we see that in Hebrews 2, but we're going to lead into that before we get here into a little bit of an introduction into Psalm chapter 8, uh, which is actually quoted in Hebrews 2. So we'll get to that point. And so Psalm chapter 8, if you turn there with me, we're going to read the entirety of Psalm chapter 8 verses 1 through 9. And uh, it's really verses four and five that we find carried over and quoted in Hebrews. I'm going to read Psalm chapter eight. And you'll be familiar, a very well known Psalm of David. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You've set your glory ob- above the heavens. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. And then verse nine: "O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth this psalm even rings out of psalm 98 where uh, the famous uh, Christmas carol joy to the world comes from psalm 98 as it speaks into that idea here in psalm 8 very similar as it speaks of the joy to the world let the heavens and earth rejoice here how majestic is your name And I think this is a fitting text to begin with as we dwell dwell here today on on Christmas Day, the day after Christmas, you could say. And as we come here, there's a moment of rejoicing as we've already sung. We've sung, and you guys are singing out today, singing out, praising the Lord for Christ is born. And so we look at this passage of Psalm 8, verse 1 and 2, and it speaks of God's majesty, his glory of rejoicing and praising him. He's high and mighty, how majestic is your name? Last week we looked at Hebrews 1 towards the end and we talked about how the name of Jesus, it's at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. For Jesus has received a name that is far excellent, far greater, far superior than any name on earth. And our response to that superior name of Jesus and is that majestic name of God is to fall on our knees. We sang, "O holy night, to fall on your knees." God is so mighty; He establishes His strength. That says here in verse three, uh, verse two of Psalm eight, He says that He is so mighty, He's so powerful, and yet it's even out of the mouths of little infants, little babies, that 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 He can establish strength. That in Corinthians, I think it says that even even the weakness, the perceived weakness of God, is stronger than the perceived strength of men. Right. And I think David is pondering the power of God, the strong arm of God that can even come from a, a small little infant out of the mouth of a baby. And today we reflect thinking about the baby in a manger, Jesus in a manger, this small infant. And from this baby, this as the, as the carol says, infant lowly, infant holy, Christ the babe, Lord of all, right? An incredible paradox, from this baby comes the one who will still the enemy and the avenger, right? I know some of you are thinking Marvel movies right now. The Avengers, right? That avenger, this one that, in a sense, the one who's seeking to take vengeance against us. God will still will that enemy. He will stop the foe. He will put the enemy to rest. The one who seeks to destroy will himself be destroyed. For the perceived weakness of God, a baby in a manger, or the cross of Jesus Christ, is greater than the strength of men. And David David ponders this I guess in his age. he's he, maybe he's writing this at night because it seems the things that he's reflecting on is he's lying out there or, or he's out on the deck and he's looking out at the stars or he's walking along the road and he's thinking to himself he's pondering kind of like we just read how Mary after all that had happened pondered these things in her heart. We sang the song Mary did you know? Do we know all of the things that Mary knew? We don't. The magnificent in Luke chapter one gives us an insight of the things that she knew and thought, but could she have perceived all the magnitude that would have come from Jesus? I can't imagine a mind would have been able to encapsulate and and, and and handle all that God would have married. Did you fully know all of that would happen? And so David here, many years before, is pondering this in verse three of Psalm eight. He says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars Which you have set into place. God is mighty and powerful and big as He looks up into the stars. And we think of the carol, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. How Jesus, the Savior, did come forth to die. For poor, ordinary people like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. Have you ever done that? You ever wandered out, right? You ever looked at the, something bigger than yourself and pondered the meaning of life? <laughs> I, I understand sometimes. Maybe I'm kind of weird in the things that I think about, okay? I know I have done that, and I, but yet I believe there's some kind of a shared human experience that we all face at some point in our life. Many times I think we can live in such a way where we suppress that desire, where we don't desire to necessarily think about how small we are. We often like to reflect and to think about how big we are. <laughs> right? And yet there are times in life when you will encounter certain things like maybe when you climb Mount Monadnock. I've been trying to do that recently and it's been really good for me. And I've been getting out, trying to get out on that mountain. But every time you go up on that mountain, right, you get up on top and you start seeing out, looking out. And if it's a good day, you can see all the way to Boston. But you get on top of Mount Monadnock, and all of a sudden you start pondering things and, and seeing things and thinking about things that you, you didn't before when you were in the weeds, you could say. When you were in the in the tree cover, and all you can see is a little path and how ridiculously tired you are, right? And all you see is around you, and then you get up all, the pot all of a sudden above the trees, and you can look out and see, and for a moment, every time I hike, I, 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 see, I think to myself, I, I'm really small, right? <laughs> really, really small. And then, and then there's another time when I, when I face this, and it's usually out in nature, and out in creation is when, when you get to go visit the ocean. Do you get this? I, I still remember from last summer, uh, we don't get to go to the ocean too often, um, but when we do, you get to go to the ocean and, and as the kids are playing, all the work to get to the beach uh, can be a lot of work, but when you, when you sit there, I can still remember as the girls were playing in the, in the waves and looking out and the vastness of the ocean and for a moment just pausing and thinking, that ocean goes from here all the way to Europe, you know? <laughs> it goes from here all the way to Africa. I could get on that ocean. I mean, this massive, the expanse of the sea. It's huge. And the power of the waves that comes crashing in, and and little old me standing there with my little feet in the sand, watching the massive power of the ocean come at me. For a moment there, you feel and you question, like David did, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or another time, maybe you are looking out at the stars especially around here up in the north where it's cold in the winter and you go outside at nighttime if you do and it can be so crystal clear. The best time to look at the stars, I think, is often in the winter. You look out and the crystal clear the stars that are dotting the sky and I got to be thinking about the, the, the vastness of the universe the other day uh, when, I, when I saw just brief portions of a, a 60 Minutes special on, I don't know if you saw this, it was on the James Webb Telescope. Did you hear about this? It was actually launched yesterday. Uh, and my phone actually updated me and I watched the launch. <laughs> yesterday morning, Christmas morning, we were getting up, we were getting breakfast and all of a sudden my phone says, the James Webb telescope is about to launch. And so I turned it on and 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, and then, this thing, it was a $10 billion telescope, okay, that they launched into space. It's headed to go beyond the sun, where they said in the special, they said they want to take this telescope farther than anything's ever gone before and to look farther than anyone's ever looked before back to, and this is what 60 Minutes says, back to the let there be light moment. That's what they said. And it's a fascinating thing as we consider of could we look back in time almost for the, they said the lights that we see right now from the sun takes eight minutes for that light to get to us. And so if you can only blow that out More and more and more. So the light that you see from those stars uh, far off in the distance is, is years beyond. And then you can go beyond and beyond and beyond. And if you could get something that could look beyond the stars that we can see with the naked eye, beyond the stars that we can even see with a telescope, what is beyond that? And 60 Minutes was asking the engineers who were working on this project for the last 25 years developing this telescope, this observatory, this $10 billion project, and as he asked them, well, what is beyond that? And they said, we don't know. I said, right now with the best technology that we have as mankind on this earth, the best technology that we have, we can see what we think max 5% of the universe, what we think is there, 5%. The greatness of man can view with a telescope 5%. They're hoping with this to look far beyond that. And they said, so literally, the next, if you do quick math, the next 95%, you have no idea. We have no idea. And then it's times when you read, thinking about that, and you read Psalm 8, and you say, how majestic is your name? When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon of the stars and the stuff you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that God is mindful of me? Psalm eight we find is quoted here in Hebrews chapter two. So you turn to our text of uh, this Hebrews chapter two. We'll look at verse five, and you'll notice here in a moment where you'll you'll hear that phrase come up here as we read. I'm going to read Hebrews five. uh, Sorry, sorry, Hebrews two, verse five. We'll read down to verse fourteen, and then we'll kind of walk through this passage here as we examine what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us about the person of Jesus as Sam has already alluded to. Today we're gonna to be looking at this idea that we see Jesus, the fact that Jesus became human, became man, dwelt among us. So let's look at this. Hebrews 2 verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Remember in chapter 1 he's been talking a lot about angels. Jesus is far superior than them. Okay? Okay? That's, that's the simple, Jesus is far more superior than any angelic being, any heavenly being that you could ever imagine, Jesus is more superior. So he says, it's not to angels that God subjected or submitted the world to, it wasn't to angels. Verse eight, I mean, sorry, verse six, it was testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, Psalm eight, or the son of man that you care for him? Verse seven, and you made him a little lower than the angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection or submission under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And I love this phrase, yet at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but, verse nine, we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he who, by whom all things exist, there's the universe, verse 10, this big massiveness, right, of Colossians we looked at a few months ago, that by him all things consist. He holds all things together. And in Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe in his hands. It literally says, and so here in verse 10 he says so it was fitting that he for whom by all whom all things exist that's God in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation that's man perfect through suffering. Verse 11 for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all of one source that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Think of that. Speaking of Jesus who is now not ashamed to call you and I brothers. Brothers and sisters, family, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, the children of God, has given me. And then verse 14, we'll see this Christmas theme come out in this verse. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. There's the Emmanuel. We share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus likewise partook of the same things. He took on that flesh and blood and dwelt among us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And here he reiterates the same point he's been making. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. There's the high priest theme. In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, he is able, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, that's the passage. We aren't going to be looking at every verse, don't worry, today. We're going to be focusing more on that beginning part, but as we read this passage and what the author is trying to communicate to us, we are reminded what, what is said in, in Psalm 8. That for a little while we were made lower than the angels is also likened to Jesus there. For a little while you were made lower than the heavenly beings, the celestial bodies. We think that even this passage, as it says in verse 8, putting everything in subjection or submission unto his feet. Psalm 8 actually says that into man, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, you've made him a little lower and you've given him the world. You've put everything under his dominion. Does does that ring a bell for some of you? Some of you who grew up in church, you think back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over the little bunnies that we gave my kids for Christmas. Yes, we're those parents, right? (laughs) Okay, Little bunnies, little pets, right? We have dominion over the earth over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When we think back here, if we go back into story time really quickly, we think back to the beginning. We did this, I guess, a few months ago as well in our grand story, the great story of the Bible. Man was originally made in the garden to have dominion, to be God's, you could say, viceroy, to be a steward over God's creation, to work the earth, to be in relationship with God and to bestow his dominion on the earth and to rule it well to work it, to cultivate it, to oversee, to have dominion as men and women tending the earth and ruling it well. But, but we decided, we didn't, we, we didn't really want that agreement, right? We, we didn't want to, uh, to rule with God's dominion on the earth on his behalf. We thought it would be better to rule with our own. Right? We, we decided to exercise our own dominion and as the conversation with Adam and Eve and the snake goes on, and the serpent convinces him, you will be like God. You will have power. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. You will be able to establish right and wrong on your terms, not on God's terms. It'll be your terms because you will be like God Himself. We'll be God's. And with that disobedience, it plunged us into having to then save ourselves, having to create what we could not do. We, God is the sole creator. God wasn't finished with us though and this is the story of Christmas that God in his grace and in his love he wasn't finished he had a plan of redemption that he enacted throughout the scriptures and we are living in today we were intended to rule and have dominion and to live in relationship with God but a plan that God enacted was to redeem us back to that to restore us to save us back to himself he spoke through the ages, as the writer of Hebrews says, long ago and many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the heir of all things, the one who is the son of man, who now speaks to us as the official uh, representative of mankind, who rules and reigns over all things, who has dominion and who has subjected all things. And so in chapter one, we, we think back in Hebrews of comparing that idea in Genesis as God has been working out this plan of redemption. Chapter one speaks that Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is that one. Jesus is, is, is ultimately God. And, and he, he's been working this out, that Jesus has a name that is far superior than the angels, far superior than anything else we might direct our worship towards. We are to fall on our knees and worship Jesus, him alone, because why? He is God. He was there in the beginning. He created in the beginning. He breathed life into, breath of, into man. We see him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enacting creation there in Genesis one and two. Jesus, you can be sure of it, is the divine Son of God, but in chapter two, he doesn't just stop there, he goes on and in chapter two, the, the words that we have just read teach us that Jesus is better, yes, because he's the Son of God, but because he's also the Son of man because he's human. Corinthians says he's the last Adam. The first Adam has failed in this. The last Adam, the man of Jesus Christ, is the one who comes to defeat death for all time. He is our representative. He is our ambassador. He is our, um, uh, you could say, advocate, as the Bible says. Or today, as we're looking at this concept, he's our mediator. Remember in Hebrews 2, it talked about how Jesus is our great high priest, He's a faithful high priest, it says in verse seven, a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is our high priest, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our mediator. So Christmas time, we, we ultimately are reflecting on this concept that Jesus, God, has sent Jesus to come and to be born in flesh, to become the mediator between God and man, our perfect high priest. There's a major theme throughout the Old Testament. As you're familiar with the Old Testament ways of going about this, what does a high priest do? Well, Hebrews 5.1 tells us that for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. A high priest was in that relation, in that middle ground, building a bridge the high priest in the Old Testament was a man who mediated God's forgiveness and atonement for the sins of the people. He was in the tabernacle, the temple, sprinkling blood on the sacrifice there on the, uh, of the sacrifice to the mercy seat, which is on top there. The, the Ark of the Covenant is there. The day, on the Day of Atonement, there was this big uh, celebration. There was this big uh, sacrifice that took place, all a symbol to picture the coming Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet the high priest was that central figure there. But ultimately we know in the book of Hebrews and other places that that this this high priest was not enough. That Jesus was the great high priest but the high priests in the Old Testament, they weren't enough to make atonement. Hebrews 7 verse 22 says this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. That former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Me, every high priest that came before Jesus ultimately died. They could not continue in office, but he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for them. So now we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for you at this very moment. He is alive. He is both God and both man. Hebrews 1 builds the case that Jesus is better because he is God and he is worthy of our worship, fall on our knees and worship him. But Jesus is a better mediator and a better high priest to mediate the sin problem that we have. Because he is the perfect man, the true humanity it is found in Jesus. Because Jesus is God, because Jesus is man, he can mediate on our behalf as our high priest. Better than any angel or any high priest or Moses or Aaron or Joshua or anyone who has come before. Jesus is superior. Jesus took our sin. So that even though we don't necessarily see everything perfectly worked out right now, We might see things through a glass dimly but what we do see is all the most important thing. We see Jesus. He's the guarantee of the eventual completed resurrection and the eternal fulfillment of all of our hopes and longings in this life. Jesus who goes before us is our hope. We put our faith in him. He's the forerunner of our faith and trust in him as our brother, one of us who is also with God mediating for us. It's his grace, it's his plan. It's God's son. And so we look at this really quickly here as we look through this idea, especially we're gonna be looking at verse eight. We look at this as it says it's ultimately God has not done all of this for angels, but he's done it for for mankind. God could have sent an angel and he did. He sent an angel to give the good news of Jesus Christ, not an angel to be our representative. God didn't send an angel to be the good news. He sent angels to deliver the good news that Jesus was born this day. Verse seven speaks about this idea of we are made a little lower than the angels in the sense that we die, we take on death and God crowned mankind with glory and honor in the Garden of Eden with dominion but we failed in upholding that so we have been placed lower in this sense and in verse eight, we, have, we were once put, had everything under our subjection, under dominion. He left nothing outside of our control but yet, verse eight says, yet at present, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. God crowned men and women with glory in his image, and put everything under their subjection. But this has fallen. And so you might be thinking to yourself, that very verse, verse 8, I have somewhat of a sense here that we recognize in the life we're living, we don't see everything. We don't see everything under our subjection. We certainly don't even feel like everything is under God's subjection. We look at the world, we watch the news, we see how crazy life is right now. And we think of how in the world were we the one who were supposed to have dominion over this earth? We can barely control our own families, let alone the earth, let alone having rule. It doesn't seem to add up. We can only see 5% of the universe. Who are we? What is man that are mindful of him? And so the, the passage is speaking into that objection that we might have in our heart. Knowing that nothing feels like we have anything under control. And it often doesn't even feel like God is in control. And verse eight says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And then verse nine says, but we do see him. That brings comfort to me, and I hope it does for you as well. Maybe for some of you this last year or these last couple of months, or I don't know what. It's certainly been difficult for me, I, just speaking honestly. But a passage like this brings me great comfort because at present, It might seem and it might see and it might feel like nothing's going right. Nothing is under control. Everything seems to often at times in life be spinning the opposite direction, out of control. The Bible's not just say, hey, get all those things tied into place and get it all figured out and you rule your life and take ownership of your life and take the bull by the horns and you know lift yourself up by your bootstraps and all these kinds of phrases we use right pick yourself up dust yourself off the bible doesn't say that it says rather in verse eight and verse nine no we don't see everything having worked itself out and being under our control but rather what we do see is the most important thing we see Jesus and we're to fix our eyes on him when the world seems to be spinning out of control That will give us something solid to see, something solid to follow, something solid to worship when our lives (laughs) don't seem like anything worth worshiping. We live in this time period where we look to Jesus, we look to the second coming where he will and he has promised to make all things right. He will wipe away all tears and he will restore all that's been lost. He will make all wrongs made right. We look to Jesus and we look to his coming and we, we, we honor him with a faith that wells up within us that is a living hope to see the things that are yet unseen. The restoration that he promises to give one day and we walk in that in, in the moment right now. We don't maybe yet see but we do see him. We see Jesus. This is crucial. 2 Corinthians 5 for we walk by faith not by sight We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, Jesus, right now, he is eternal. We can often see all around us death and hardship and crisis and injustice and anger COVID whatever poverty persecution you can you can name it but what, we, what we're to see what we're to walk in what to believe in we're to have hope and we're to have faith in is the person of Jesus Christ to keep our eyes fixed on him for he alone is salvation it says to this whole passage leads us to look to the person of Jesus it says in verse 9 but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels namely Jesus he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How amazing is that? Jesus came down so that he would taste death for everyone. It, ultimately, I hate to be kind of dark sometimes, and I ten- have that tendency, right? But the, ultimately, this time of Jesus, little baby in a manger, that as the the Carol says, Jesus came to die. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. For Jesus the Savior did come forth to die. For poor ordinary people like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. The baby in a manger ultimately came forth to die, to take the cross and ultimately resurrect and have that power over the cross to taste the death for everyone so that he would bring many sons to glory. Do you see that in verse 10? Look at verse 10. Verse 10. So he tastes the death for everyone for it is fitting in verse 10 that he for whom by whom all things exist. Jesus is God is what they're saying. Everything exists by him. Verse 10 yet it is by bringing many sons to glory that he should be made the founder of their salvation. That he is God but he is man. That he has taken their place and then he brings many people with him. The Bible said he is the first fruits of our resurrection. He's the one who's gone before. He's the forerunner. We're looking to him. Everything that is in him, we follow in his way. He is the captain of our souls. <laughs> the shepherd of our souls. He is the founder of our faith. Hebrews two ten. it says here that he should be made the founder of their salvation. I think of sports very often, but it's like the captain of the team. He is the founder of the institution. He's the captain of that team that leads the team. He's the captain, he leads our way. He's the captain of the ship, you could say, that leads us into the safe harbor, whatever Hebrews 2.10 gives us that, that he is fitting, that God and man, that God-man would be the one who leads us to glory. And Hebrews 2.14, if you skip down to that as we walk in this idea, he's the founder of our salvation, he's been made perfect through, through suffering, and then we walk down through the passage and we find in verse 14, and stay with me here, we're almost coming to a close. It says in verse 14 that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood you and I in the family now with God for, for he has been made with us. It is, he is Emmanuel. Therefore since children share in flesh and blood he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. It's crazy. God would partake of the same things that we go through. That Jesus himself would would live a a humble life, really in relative obscurity for 30 years of his life, live an ordinary life to then do the most extraordinary thing, take on death himself. This humanity, he went to death, even the death of the cross, Philippians says, he partook of the same things, so that, it's not just to do this, but he partook of the same things, so that, through death, he might destroy, destroy, utterly destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's a powerful verse, that he would destroy the devil, he would destroy the power of death, he would break the change and set the captive free, he would speak life into the death, This is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ conquering death and giving us victory. And then it goes into this idea in verses 15 through the rest that that he would do this so that he would save those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He would set the captive free so that verse 16 that we are reminded that he didn't come to save angels. He came to save you. He came to save you. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers so that we would be one of another flesh and blood with God, God with us, the, the word made flesh that dwelt among us so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There was no other one who could do the perfect mediation to be the perfect high priest, to be the perfect representative for your sins. You could not go to God so God came to you and he became your perfect substitute the perfect sacrifice the perfect high priest your perfect prophet priest and king Jesus Christ the God man Emmanuel Hebrews I think is like that illustration we used earlier it's kind of like a telescope in a sense it lets us, as we encounter who Jesus is, as we encounter the great majestic God. Hebrews allows us to kind of look through this lens and to be able to see God in a way in a finer way that we could not do before. letting us look through, and, and ultimately, around this time of year, look through that telescope and see the star of Bethlehem, that star that, as we look closely, that star of Bethlehem that shines on one place, the place where Jesus is born. The light of the world enters the world. It's like the author of Hebrews is presenting to us a story of Christmas that is, that is centered around the central star of the universe which upon everything else revolves the star of Bethlehem. Shines down on an event so monumental and so extraordinary that not even a $10 billion telescope could point it out. Star of Bethlehem is seen through the telescope of Hebrews. Here, where Hebrews one tells us that Jesus is better than anything; he's better than the angels; he's far superior to anyone and anything. Jesus is God. He's the divine Son of God. And Hebrews two tells us that Jesus is better and far superior because Jesus is God, but because he is human. He is a man. He took on flesh and blood and partook of the same things in which we have, born in a manger, suffered and died in our place to take our sins, to taste death so that we didn't have to die, but that we, he could mediate on our behalf and become our high priest and our eternal great savior. The all-powerful son of God, as George Guthrie says, exalted above the principalities of the universe, the Lord of heaven is the same one who has lived among us, identified with us, and died for us. And in a moment, we're gonna sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's in that where it says, Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to God, the newborn king. So we ask that question in closing. What is man? What is man? Who am I to encounter so great a salvation? Well, mankind certainly doesn't make a good savior on their own. I couldn't save myself. It certainly doesn't make a good creator on our own. Certainly doesn't make a good God. We can't rule ourselves and we can't save ourselves and we need a Jesus. And so when we see Jesus, the one who could bridge the gap between God and man by being both God and man, the hypostatic union, 100% God and 100% man, he could die in our place, sit in holiness and resurrection power in authority at the right hand of God so that when we consider the works of the heavens and the stars in the sky, the hand of God, the finger of God that has traced to the heavens, that we can do nothing but marvel and fall on our knees and worship Him at such a great salvation, to thank Him for His grace, to celebrate the time of Christmas and sing His praises. For God being mindful of mankind For saving us from our sins For elevating us now With glory and honor For restoring us one day To fulfill the image of God We were meant to truly exemplify That this Christmas we can do nothing But ultimately praise his name And thank him for sending Jesus That's our response today So what is man Ultimately mankind is loved by God God loves you Christmas time teaches us nothing, if you get nothing more, that ultimately God would go through such great lengths to save mankind, that He would be mindful of you. Christmas tells us the story of the love of God. And I think Christmas tells us the story of the love of God in the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loves the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes on Him, not have to perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in that the world might be saved through Him. Believe in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You. We praise You today. Such a day, Lord, the day after Christmas, God, as we... As we reflect, as we wonder, as we wonder, as we ponder, as Mary did, as we think and we reflect, who am I? God, thank you for being gracious. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you, God, for not leaving us where we were, but, Lord, bringing us to yourself and restoring us, God, through your resurrection power, through your saving grace for by grace we are saved through faith. Lord, thank you for these truths that we walk in today or that we can come and we can stand and sing in. We can have a smile on our face. We can enjoy the company of of one another and and, and enjoy the life that you have bestowed upon us. God, it's because of you. We give you the worship. We fall on our knees and worship you today. For God, you have saved us. You have sent Jesus. (laughs) As we reflected earlier, for Jesus has come to save the people from their sins. Lord, thank you for that. We praise you today. We give you the glory and we sing with the angels your praises today. In Jesus' name, amen.